Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten stories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Fact-Checking Hollywood Babylon. Great films of the silent years. This isn't news. This is totally unfounded gossip. It's a long way from Hollywood. Criticized for dealing too frankly with such themes as sex and nudity. Hollywood. Babylon. The result of all of the scandals that we've been discussing over the last five weeks was the establishment of what would eventually be called the Production Code Administration, a body of censors who vetted every film produced in Hollywood or with nationwide distribution ambitions between 1934 and the mid-1960s. The code by which these censors evaluated finished films became known as the Hayes Code, named after Will H. Hayes, the so-called movie czar who had been hired in early 1923 to help the industry get back on its feet after loads of post-scandal bad press. Let's turn it over to this week's special guest, reading from Hollywood Babylon. Though Mabel Normand and Mary Miles Minter stood out as the principal scapegoats in the William Desmond Taylor case, all of Hollywood felt the heat. Howls went up around the country at this new proof of filmland depravity. 1922 was a rough year for the movie industry. Stacks of uncomplimentary press notices continued to pour in. Denunciations rang out from the pulpits. It was not divine wrath the magnets feared, but retaliation at the box office. The specter of collective boycott by women's clubs, church organizations, and anti-vice committees seemed formidable. With the professional Puritans clamoring for a cleanup, something had to be done to improve the movie's image fast. The plush $100,000-a-year job of movie czar was offered to a prim-faced, bat-eared, mealy-mouthed political chiseler, Will H. Hayes, a member of President Harding's unfortunate cabinet, who as chairman of the Republican National Committee had tilted the nomination to Harding. This Hoosier Presbyterian elder, who was also a member of the Masons, Knights of Pythias, Kiwanians, Rotarians, Moose, and Elks, seemed just right to give the Purity League's satisfaction. As Hayes intoned, the founding fathers of Filmland broke out in shit-eating grins, and heads bobbed agreement for the cameras. Politics had taught Hayes all he needed to know about hypocrisy. The Hayes office issued its first diktat. Films were to be purified. Screen immorality would be scissored. No more improprieties. No more lingering lusty kisses. No more carnality. The axe 
for off-screen cut-ups. The picture people were about to observe a perpetual Lent. Morals clauses would be inserted into all contracts to persuade the golden people to shape up. Male stars would henceforth be monks, and women stars, nuns. In 1928, it came out that the supposed Simon Pure Hayes had accepted a $375,000 gift and a $185,000 loan from oilman Harry Teapot Dome Sinclair in gratitude for pushing easygoing Harding into the White House. The devious Hayes told a Senate committee three different stories about these bribes. Senator Bora alleged that, quote, Hayes caused the Republican Party to sell itself to the willful despoilers of the nation. Hayes barely wriggled out of that one. In 1930, he was caught red-handed paying expense money, honoraria, and salaries to, quote, moral leaders who were supposed to render impartial opinions on the purity of films for various religious and civic organizations. Shifty Hayes got away with it. Last week, we discussed Anger's claim that Hayes had a so-called doom book that he used to blacklist over a hundred literal bad actors. As I mentioned, I doubt this book really existed. But today, we'll see that Anger got a lot right about Hayes, and in fact, Hollywood Babylon's account of the man chosen by the studios to institute their so-called self-censorship system is richer and more truthful than the versions found in most books about the pre-code era. Today, we will explore how Will Hayes was chosen to clean up Hollywood, what he actually did in office, the extent of his own scandals, and will go anger one better by talking about Hayes' failures and how the code that came to colloquially be known as his was actually composed and enforced by other men. Join us, won't you, as we explore the tale of Will Hayes. Motion pictures were essentially lawless until 1915. That was the year of the birth of a nation, which would eventually inspire the industry to rally around the fictional feature film as the default commercial format. But it was also the year of a significant Supreme Court decision, which would pave the way for censorship. In the case of Mutual Film Corporation versus Industrial Commission of Ohio, the court ruled that motion pictures were a commercial product and not an art form, and unlike novels or public oratory, they were not subject to freedom of speech, and in fact, could be regulated like other objects of commerce. Justice Joseph McKenna declared that because films, quote, may be used for evil, the government had the right to step in, the way that they would attempt to control disease in the food supply. He added, quote, Besides, there are some things which should not have pictorial representation in public places and to all audiences. In other words, mere depiction of a social problem 
was seen by some critics of the film industry as providing a how-to for impressionable audiences. This statement contained a kernel of the philosophy that would guide most of the arguments over the next 30 years or so that it was good business for producers to regulate the content of movies. Instead of marketing to many different niche interests, economic classes and levels of education, the studios and their self-appointed censors would aim to reach a single mass audience all at once by focusing on appealing to the presumably moderately religious middle-class middle-of-the-road. It goes without saying that the presumption was that this imagined mass viewer was white and heterosexual, because to presume otherwise would be to condone the miscegenation and quote-unquote deviant sexuality that the supposed middle-of-the-road supposedly felt was evil. For Hollywood, the decade of the 1920s would be defined in large part by films, stars, and the press surrounding them, alternately appealing, intentionally or accidentally, to an appetite in the culture to throw caution to the wind and cast off traditional mores and morals, and pushback against the same from reformers and those who were desperate to restore some sort of order and standards from an earlier time, before the First World War. In February 1921, five months after the death of Olive Thomas and seven months before the death of Virginia Rappay, Paramount's Adolf Zukor and Jesse Lasky presided over a steak dinner at Delmonico's in New York. The most powerful men in Hollywood were there, including D.W. Griffith, William Fox, Sam Goldwyn, Carl Lemley, Louis Selznick, and Joseph Skank. Lasky made the case that unless the industry made moves to show that it was regulating itself, the government was going to step in and levy regulations that would cripple their ability to collect unlimited profits. Already, individual states were establishing their own censorship boards. By the end of the year, nearly 100 bills would be circulating through 37 states with the intent of censoring movies. Beyond the commercial matters, the state boards that already existed each had their own standards and practices and would cut films differently accordingly. Kansas would cut a scene of a woman smoking. Ohio wouldn't but may cut something they found equally offensive. Thus, the artistic and narrative integrity and coherence of the product was already disappearing. If the studios didn't take some kind of action, it was going to get worse before it got better. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Lasky presented the men with a code of rules 
a 14-point program legislating what could not and would not be shown on screen. Lasky said his studio was planning to adopt this self-censorship and that the others should, too, in order to protect them all from politically motivated meddling. What he was asking the producers to agree to was very broad. The 14 rules included bans on quote-unquote sensuality, depictions of prostitution, nudity, belly dancing, and stories primarily about vice which, quote, might instruct the morally feeble in the methods of committing crime. Finally, and possibly most significantly, there was a rule against insulting or defaming religion. The Paramount men were playing a complicated game here. They didn't plan to actually follow these rules themselves. If they had been in effect a year earlier, a film like Something to Think About, directed by Cecil B. DeMille, starring Gloria Swanson and released by Paramount, probably wouldn't have been made, and Something to Think About had been by far the highest-grossing movie of the previous year. Zucker thought that if he could get the other studios sanitizing their films, he could continue to release risque content, at least for a while, and clean up at the box office. But then his partner, Lasky, leaked the list of rules to Variety, and the National Board of Review, a group that had already announced that they would vet movies on behalf of Hollywood's antagonists, said they would use the 14 points as a method of evaluation. In December, the studios invited Will Hayes to come help them enforce a program to appease their critics. Hayes had been suggested by Louis Selznick, who considered himself to be the mortal enemy of Zucker, who had pushed Selznick out of his own company. Selznick decided that what Hollywood needed to do was something akin to what Major League Baseball had done in the wake of the fixed 1919 World Series. They had hired a commissioner. Selznick believed that in Hollywood, they could all go back to business as usual if they had a figurehead who could convince the public that he was cleaning house. Hayes had started his career as a lawyer in Indiana, but he had been involved in Republican politics his entire adult life. He had run the 1920 Republican National Convention, where he had had some hope of himself being elected the party's presidential candidate. Instead, after backroom maneuvering resulted in Warren G. Harding winning the nomination, Hayes served as Harding's campaign manager, steering him to an overwhelming popular vote victory. Hayes then spent a year serving as Postmaster General, during which he reorganized the post office to institute modern, more humanist labor practices. Hayes's previous contact with the film industry had come during the election. He had promised the studio chiefs that the Harding administration would be pro-business, and the studios had put their support behind the candidate and helped him to get elected. The studios wanted Hayes to essentially repeat his work for Harding for them. They wanted him to promote 
a positive projection of the industry, unite disparate factions behind that vision, and let the people who actually made the movies get back to work without the distraction and roadblocks of outside criticism. Hayes would be variously compared to a traffic cop and Babbitt, the conformist businessman, to be invented in a satirical novel by Sinclair Lewis the following year. Hayes was considered the right man for the job because of his ties to the Harding administration, his family ties, he was the right kind of immigrant, his family having arrived from England not long after the Mayflower, and his religion, i.e., not Jewish. Most importantly, he was a good Christian who claimed that he wasn't in favor of the total censorship advocated by the reformer movement. A massive event at the Hollywood Bowl was held to herald his arrival in town. Newspapers, only semi-ironically, spoke of him as a kind of demigod, landed in Gomorrah to save the souls of the movie colony. What few knew, however, was that Hayes had secrets and scandals of his own. His wife was infirm, and he spent very little time at home in Indiana with her. And his work for the Harding administration, which would later be considered the most corrupt presidency of the 20th century, wasn't all on the up and up. But for the first few years, Hayes did what was expected of him. One analyzer of Hayes, Gerald S. Schatz, once wrote, There was some similarity between a W.C. Fields movie and a standard 1920 model American political speech. The Fields movie purported to be funny, but it wasn't. And the speech purported to say something, but it didn't. Hayes was a master at seeming to say the right things, without ever really saying or doing anything at all. Hayes would later write that he didn't think the scandals were the real problem. I felt sure that if all the stories of debauchery had been true, there would have been no time to make motion pictures, he wrote. He felt that it was his mission to create what he called a demand for finer films, so that the studios would have no choice but to provide the supply. But contrary to Hollywood Babylon's claim that Hayes's first diktat was that the screen be purified, it actually took years for the Hayes office to actually issue guidelines for producers in terms of film content. For the first four and a half years on the job, Will Hayes was mainly a PR man and lobbyist. He wrote a very fine line, carefully putting the onus on ticket buyers rather than producers, saying things like, If the public does indeed feel entitled to a better and higher form of motion picture amusement, then it is up to the public to patronize only those places that least offend its taste. A man may be imbued with the ideas of a vegetarian, but he can't run a vegetarian restaurant successfully when all of his patrons demand beef. Hayes led a successful campaign to defeat a new censorship law in Massachusetts, and from that point on managed to prevent any new state from starting their own censorship board. He created the Public Relations Committee, 
which was incredibly literally named. Basically, it united Hollywood power players with some of their fiercest critics, including members of organizations like the DAR, the YMCA, the American Legion, and the Catholic Welfare Council. These groups got to pretend like they were in on crafting Hollywood policy, when really, they were mostly appeased by getting free previews of movies and celebrity appearances at their events. And in his first year in office, Hayes got the studios to start putting a morals clause in each performer's contract. Universal had led the way there, announcing in September 1921, in the immediate aftermath of Fatty Arbuckle's arrest, that they would reserve the right to cancel any performer's contract should they, quote, forfeit the respect of the public. Now Hayes standardized the clause. Anyone signing a studio contract going forward would sign a pledge to, quote, conduct himself with due regard to public conventions and morals and agrees he will not do or commit any act or thing that will tend to degrade him in society or bring him into public hatred, contempt, scorn, or ridicule, or that will tend to shock, insult, or offend the community or ridicule public morals or decency or prejudice the producer or the motion picture industry in general. These were successes, but Hayes also made a major blunder early in his tenure that would reveal how few firm ideals he actually held and how easily he could be swayed by criticism. Will Hayes' claims that the market should decide the fate of movies and the people who made them were tested right away by the question of how to handle the long-term future of Roscoe Arbuckle. Though he received a steady stream of letters from movie fans asking that the ban on Fatty's films be lifted, Hayes also had to contend with the reformers and the studio heads who were eager to bury anything and anyone that the industry's critics considered to be problematic. Hayes would claim that Arbuckle's old partner Joseph Skank and Paramount chief Adolf Zucker had actually asked Hayes to ban Arbuckle's films and keep him from making more. Hayes had conceded, and this would become Hayes' first significant action as Hollywood censorship czar. This action was perceived as no-tolerance toughness, and it would help legitimize Hayes' cause. But eight months later, Hayes lifted the ban, issuing a statement in which he declared, quote, Every man in the right way and at the proper time is entitled to his chance to make good. It is apparent that Roscoe Arbuckle's conduct, since his trouble, merits that chance. Hayes said he had been pressured into this by theater owners who believed their patrons still wanted to see Fatty Arbuckle movies. But women's clubs, Catholic groups, and editorial writers hadn't changed their stance on Arbuckle, and they all vocally protested his promised return to screens. Though up until this point, membership in the Public Relations Committee had mollified a large number of Hollywood's most vocal critics, now the membership revolted against Hayes, calling for him to reverse his decision on Arbuckle and for the public 
to boycott the fatty films. The gulf between what the public wanted and what self-appointed arbiters of good taste thought they should have had been the partial subject of intolerance, D.W. Griffith's follow-up to The Birth of a Nation. One trade paper that supported Will Hayes, Film Daily, brought to mind Griffith's race-baiting hit in an editorial in which the reformers were compared unfavorably to the racist militia which Griffith had shown saving the South from the threat of miscegenation. The wild-eyed reformers, the Ku Klux crowd, said the screen was too clean for fatty, Film Daily wrote. When will these googly-eyed folk realize that the great big American public will give its own answer? The birth of a nation had triumphed commercially and as a popular historical phenomenon in spite of protests, for better or for worse. But times had changed, and Hayes lost his nerve to protect Arbuckle in the face of criticism. He was afraid of controversy, with good reason, as his job had been invented in order to quell it. As he lamented later, There are times when, if everyone is shouting loudly enough, a man may begin to doubt the rightness of his own decisions. He announced a compromise, which both sides accepted. Arbuckle could return to work behind the camera only. His face on movie screens would remain verboten for most of the rest of Arbuckle's lifetime, and in some places, bans would hold on his body of work for much longer than that. In the fall of 1923, Will Hayes officially, secretly, separated from his wife, Helen. While serving as the figurehead for an effort to promote traditional Christian values on movie screens and within the movie colony, Hayes was quietly living as a single man in New York, while his wife of 20 years stayed behind in Indiana. He would not actually file for divorce until 1929, at which point his wife Helen did not contest or protest the filing. In 1930, essentially as soon as his divorce was final, Hayes married a widow named Jessie Heron. It was in 1924 that events would begin to come to light that would tarnish Hayes' image as what Time magazine would call the polychromatic Pollyanna. Here we need to back up a bit and talk about Warren G. Harding, the 29th president of the United States, who was extremely popular during his very brief term in office and has since been widely decried as possibly the worst president of all time. Harding took office amidst a transitional moment. The nation was collectively traumatized by the First World War, just beginning to grapple with the crime wave that bubbled up in response to prohibition, and the apparent loss of Victorian feminine ideals that went with all of the above. Voters reacted against the diplomacy-minded academic Woodrow Wilson by electing a friendly, small-government populist in Harding. Harding, who had little political experience behind him, said he would hire the best minds to show him the ropes 
but he actually mostly hired hometown cronies and members of his family. He flagrantly cheated on his wife when one mistress, Carrie Fulton Phillips, threatened to reveal their sexy correspondence during the 1920 campaign, Harding arranged for her to be paid off with Republican National Committee funds. Harding was right to not want the letters to get out. When they were revealed, only recently, his use of the name Jerry to refer to his penis and his habit of talking about said organ in the third person proved shocking and hilarious 100 years after the fact. Another mistress, Nan Britton, claimed in 1927 to have given birth to Harding's illegitimate child. 88 years later, DNA testing proved she was telling the truth. Critics eventually realized that Harding was, as one put it, almost unbelievably ill-informed. His public speaking was said to be often unintelligibly marred by what would be described as turgid and maladroit language. At one point, Harding apparently confessed his feelings of insecurity to a secretary. I can't make a damn thing out of this tax problem, he said. I listen to one side and they seem right. And then, God, I talk to the other side and they seem just as right. And here I am where I started. I know somewhere there is a book that will give me the truth, but hell, I couldn't read the book. Such descriptions make Warren G. Harding sound a lot like Donald Trump. Except, you know, with humility. In fact, Harding's administration was rife with corruption. But it seems like he was either unaware or willfully oblivious to how dirty it really was until it was too late. In August of 1923, the president traveled to Alaska. He apparently had realized something by this point because he reportedly spent the trip asking reporters, quote, what a president should do whose friends had betrayed him. On his return trip to Washington, Harding fell ill with food poisoning, reportedly from some bad crab on the presidential boat, but somehow the foodborne illness left him open to pneumonia. Harding died in bed on August 2, 1923, of an apparent heart attack, just over two and a half years into his presidency. There has been much speculation as to the suspicious circumstances of Harding's death. For one thing, it was later discovered that there had been no crab on board the boat. Some believed Harding was poisoned by his wife, who was alone with Harding when he actually died. Others would come to believe that Harding had discovered something that made him want to kill himself. Of course, sometimes 57-year-old men who don't check their own appetites and who are dealing with enormous stress just die of heart attacks. And within a year of Harding's death, which was mourned sincerely by a nation which had no idea yet what was really going on behind the scenes, matters would begin to come to light that suggested that his conscience might have been extremely troubled at the time of his passing. Soon, the Senate Committee on Public Lands 
began the investigation that would reveal what became known as the Teapot Dome Scandal. In brief, in 1920, before Harding took office, Congress gave the Secretary of the Navy power to determine the handling of oil reserves at three sites, including Teapot Dome, Wyoming. Once Harding became president, his appointed Secretary of the Interior, Albert B. Fall, who was a friend of the oil industry, maneuvered to change this setup to benefit his friends. He convinced Harding to sign an executive order changing the control over the oil sites from the Office of the Navy to the Office of the Interior, and then Fall arranged to lease the lands to private oil companies for drilling. These drilling leases went to Sinclair Oil and Pan American Company, without any sort of competitive bidding process. Later, it emerged that Henry Sinclair of Sinclair Oil had given Fall $260,000 in Liberty Bonds, and Pan American's Edward F. Doheny had paid the secretary a no-interest loan of $100,000. $100,000 in 1922 dollars would be about a million and a half dollars in 2018. Fall ended up going to prison for a year for accepting bribes, and Sinclair went to prison after being found guilty of contempt of court and contempt of the Senate. As for what all of this had to do with Will Hayes, in 1924, Hayes was first brought before Congress as a witness to the Teapot Dome scandal. It emerged that in addition to improperly gifting bonds to fall, Sinclair had given a loan of $185,000 worth of bonds and a cash donation of $75,000 to the Republican National Committee via Will H. Hayes, who, though he had moved on to his new job in Hollywood, was still trying to help the committee pay down debts it had incurred during the campaign he had managed that had gotten Harding elected. Hayes then approached other tycoons and said that if they donated monies to help pay off the debts of the campaign, he would trade them an equal amount of Sinclair's bonds for their cash. In other words, an oil executive had won the rights to drill lands previously untapped by private oil companies by apparently bribing the Secretary of the Interior and had simultaneously helped to pay off debt associated with the successful campaign of that bribe-taking secretary's boss. And Will H. Hayes had been the middleman in that latter part of the deal. It also turned out that the bonds were produced as a way of laundering the profits from the sale of oil through a shell company, but that was really neither here nor there. Anger claims Hayes changed his story three times about his role in all of this, which might be true, but he was only called before Congress twice and told two different stories there. In 1924, Hen merely donated $75,000 to the Republican Party. Hayes did not mention the bonds or the fact that Hayes himself had tried to transform those bonds into cash by reselling them. In 1928, Hayes was called back and this time he told the whole story, or at least more of it. When asked why he hadn't mentioned the bonds in his previous testimony, Hayes said, You didn't ask.
By the late 1920s, Hayes and his team had lost the ability to effectively enforce their policies. After the Wall Street crash of 1929, as the Depression set in, box office numbers steadily fell off. The studios decided they couldn't afford to play by the rules anymore. Sex was one of the few things that still sold, and if they omitted it from their movies, they wouldn't be able to keep on making movies for much longer. That movies were moving away from the propriety which Hayes represented and promised was evident as early as 1927, when studios that were trying to abide by the Hayes suggestions found themselves at an economic disadvantage. Carl Lemley privately admitted that spring that he was, quote, beginning to think our clean picture policy was a mistake, that the films he was releasing at Universal were, quote, too damned clean, and audiences stay away on account of it. In crisis, the Hayes office saw a need to do a major rebranding. They began by hiring Jason Joy, a colonel who had worked in public relations at the War Department, to function as a liaison to help studios conform to each state's censorship regulations before films even went into production. Under the pretense that individual states still had separate review boards that could demand their own changes, the Hayes office asked studios to submit all scripts and scenarios to Joy for review before films were shot, so that he could point out scenes that would get cut in various states. The hope was that the studios would then rewrite those scenes so that they would become acceptable nationwide. Joy also developed a list of over 30 rules, which he called the Don'ts and Be Carefuls. This document, released in the fall of 1927, would become one of the most ridiculed pieces of writing in Hollywood history for its patronizing tone. It suggested that filmmakers omit all depictions of sensitive subjects, such as drug-taking, prostitution, miscegenation, a rule which would effectively segregate the screen, quote-unquote sex perversion, which basically meant homosexuality, and criticism of religions or other countries. The 25 topics on which producers were advised to be careful ranged from sedition to surgical operations to, quote, excessive or lustful kissing. Hayes sent copies of the Don'ts and Be Carefuls to all the major newspapers as evidence that external censorship was not needed because his office was still on the case. But the content of movies didn't actually change much to hew to the Don'ts and Be Carefuls. Over the next couple of years, as sound film became more sophisticated, and began to develop into an art form that balanced depiction with conversation, studios stopped sending Joy their scripts. They knew the Hayes office could not punish them, and by making films that defied the don'ts and be carefuls, they were finding rewards at the box office. What ultimately sparked the eventual change was nothing short of the threat of religious persecution. In 1929, an anti-Semitic Iowa senator named Smith Brookhart proposed that the film industry should be regulated by the Federal Trade Commission. Brookhart was disturbed that power in Hollywood was consolidated by what he called, 
quote, bunches of Jews. And though not everyone worded their opposition to Hollywood thusly, there was a sense that the film industry was so amoral because they had so little Christian influence in positions of power, Will Hayes notwithstanding. As Hollywood began producing and releasing more films which pushed the envelope in terms of not just their depictions but their casual attitudes towards things like sex and violence, the protests from Catholics, Christians, and anti-Semites got louder and louder. Understanding that Joy's Don'ts and Be Carefuls weren't working, Hayes sought guidance from an Irish Catholic trade magazine publisher named Martin Quigley. Quigley worked with a priest named Father Daniel Lord to write a new set of guidelines for Hollywood films called The Production Code. The code included many of the same prohibitions as the Don'ts and Be Carefuls, but it was also carefully written to allow Catholics to feel as though their voices were being heard without offending anyone who hated Catholics. This document was imbued with the philosophy that movies should aspire to be morally correct entertainment. The morals were not so subtly derived from the tenets of Christianity. Sensing a threat to their positions of power and their very livelihoods, the Jewish moguls, who were under pressure from the East Coast bankers who funded their movies and who had been losing money steadily since the stock market crash, agreed to adopt the Quigley scripted code. But Joy, who like Hayes was a people pleaser, proved to be the wrong man to enforce the new rules. And as numbers at the box office continued to slide, the studios lost interest in cooperation for the common good. More than ever, they were in competition with one another. Between 1930 and 1934, Hollywood films became more risque than ever. This is the period known as the pre-code era, and it included such landmark films as Babyface, in which Barbara Stanwyck sleeps her way from a gritty roadhouse to a glamorous penthouse, and gangster flicks like The Public Enemy, featuring James Cagney as a neighborhood kid turned crime boss who was both completely amoral and totally charismatic. By 1931, it became clear that Joy and Hayes had no more recourse to punish producers whose films challenged the new code than they had been able to enforce the don'ts and be carefuls. If the code office denied a film their approval, the studio who made the film could appeal to what was called the Hollywood Jury, which consisted of a rotating panel of film executives who always wash one another's backs. Meanwhile, in the spring of 1930, accusations emerged that Hayes' office wasn't the squeaky clean house of miracles that it purported to be. Dr. George Reed Andrews, who headed a group called the Church and Drama League and was part of the Public Relations Committee, which supposedly advised the studios as to what was and what was not morally acceptable in movies, alleged that Hayes had more than once offered to buy his cooperation. In 1925, Andrews said, Hayes first offered him a salary of $10,000 a year, which Andrews believed was Hayes's attempt to, quote, render me harmless and destroy my independence of action. Andrews claimed that three years later, 
Hayes' secretary offered him an additional $3,000 in exchange for providing quote-unquote special services of consultation. The religious leader said that he turned all of these offers down. Andrews also charged that a Charles S. McFarland was being paid by Hayes to influence the Federal Council of Churches to favor the film industry. The Hayes office denied these accusations, but McFarland later acknowledged that he had accepted funds from Hayes, and he resigned from his position with the Council of Churches. Stuck between a boss who was making backroom deals to silence his critics and an industry he was supposed to regulate that could overrule him at every turn, Jason Joy got tired of feeling totally ineffectual, and in the fall of 1932, he left the studio relations job to become an in-house consultant at Fox. Hayes replaced Joy with James Wingate, who had been the director of the New York Censorship Board. Around the same time, FDR was elected and the last of Hayes' old Republican cronies, who had been hanging around through the Coolidge and Hoover administrations, finally left town. Wingate would fail to prevent the release of a number of films that would challenge the code. Reformers around the country began to suspect that Hayes and his team had lost control of the inmates, and the Hollywood money men began to fear that in a Democratic administration, Hayes no longer had the power to stall off meaningful federal intervention. Finally, nationwide Catholic groups threatened a wholesale boycott of the industry. This was sparked by the release of I'm No Angel, the second film built around actress-slash-writer Mae West and her body lampoon of gender mores. James Wingate had viewed the film and had given it his blessing— predicting that it would inspire no protest. He was wrong, and we'll get into why in a future episode on Mae West, but the upshot was that by the end of 1933, Wingate was out, and Hayes had promoted a publicist named Joseph Breen to the position of top code enforcer. The Irish Catholic Breen gave the Hayes office the teeth that Hayes himself had never been able to provide. As we've seen, Hayes did not write the code that came to be known as the Hayes Code. As leader of the Hayes office, he very quickly lost any real power he might have had to influence film content. Though he remained nominally in charge of the production code until his resignation and retirement in 1945, nine years before he died, It was Breen who would define the application of the code for decades to come. But Breen's is a story for another day. Today, we'll conclude by giving Kenneth Anger some credit. The Will Hayes saga is one tale that Hollywood Babylon gets mostly right. Next week, we're back to scandals with the story of a sexed-up divorcee for whom movie stardom was the one type of celebrity nut she had trouble cracking. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, 
narrated and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our editors are Sam Dingman and Jacob Smith. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Original music was composed for this season by Evan Viola. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks to our special guest, Gideon Yego, who read this week's excerpt from Hollywood Babylon. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode, which include links to our sources. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you are a fan of this podcast, perhaps you'll also like my new book. It's called Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes's Hollywood. It comes out on November 13th, but you can pre-order it now at Amazon.com or HarperCollins.com. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. She's going down.